Advantage on CJSW 90.9 FM on Treaty 7 territory in Calgary. My name is Kate Jacobson. We offer analysis on Albertan and Canadian history and politics from a perspective that doesn't always get a lot of airtime. Welcome to the Alberta Advantage. I am your host, Kate Jacobson, and with me today is Joel. Hello, hello. As well as our guest, Seth Klein, author of A Good War, Mobilizing Canada for the Climate Emergency. Seth served for 22 years as the founding British Columbia director of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Seth, thank you for joining us here on Team Advantage. Nice to be with you. So the core of the argument in your book is that Canada needs to mobilize for the climate emergency in the same way that Canada mobilized against the Axis powers in World War II. To begin, I think it would be good maybe to start with a bit of history about the beginning of World War II. You know, Britain declared war against Nazi Germany in early September. Canada makes its own declaration of war a week later. What happened in Canada after that declaration? You know, Canada had been in the throes of the Great Depression for almost a decade. How did the war declaration change things? Well, initially, uh, let's just describe it as a slow takeoff. And, and this is one of the areas where I found solace in this World War II story, because in the face of the climate emergency, we are all living in this awkward period where it feels like the public doesn't always get it. Our governments clearly don't always get it. We keep waiting for this battle to begin in earnest. And we look in the rearview mirror of history, and a lot of us just assume that um, it was totally different back then, you know, that Mackenzie King would have declared war and everyone was ready to rally and gung-ho and, and ready to go. And that wasn't true. Uh, it wasn't true before the declaration of the war. And it also wasn't true for a while after the declaration of war. This was a country, as you just referenced, it was still dealing with the throes of the Great Depression. The First World War was still a very near memory. This was not a country that was keen to go back into a world war. This was not a government that was at all keen to go into another world war. And so right up to the 11th hour, you you have the same kind of threat denial I think we're living with today. And even once they declared war, you know, historians referred to the first nine months of World War II as the phony war, because not a lot happened initially. And the public opinion in Canada was was certainly not unified in terms of the merits of being engaged in this. Even when Canada declared war, it remained an open question initially as to whether or not we would be sending troops overseas as opposed to just defending our own territory. That, of course, eventually changes, uh, in particular with the fall of France in June of, of 1940. But it is worth recalling that it, it you know it takes a combination of events and leadership to ultimately you know, get the society where it needed to be. You write about the new climate denialism that exists quite extensively in Canada, basically acknowledging the, the science of climate change and the urgency it requires on one hand, and then proceeding to basically take no meaningful action that corresponds to the scale of the threat. Uh, so if we were to extend this kind of analogy from World War II to our present moment, if the enemy is the fossil fuel industry, would it be fair to say that uh, many of our current political leaders are the Neville Chamberlains of the climate emergency? Yeah, I actually do think that's a good way of putting it. Um, and and certainly, just to extend your analogy further, we still have, you know, allegedly progressive governments federally and provincially 
who spend an awful lot of time trying to appease the fossil fuel industry and trying to alleviate their anxiety. And part of what I'm arguing in the book is, at this late hour, if a climate plan, provincially or federally, isn't making the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers and its members deeply anxious, then it's probably not a climate plan worth having. So just to elaborate a little bit more on what I mean by the new climate denialism, traditional climate denialism is the one we're more familiar with, uh, you know, as manifested by Donald Trump or Maxime Bernier, that's just the straight up uh, refusal to acknowledge the reality of climate change and human-induced climate change. But for what it's worth, I actually think that kind of climate denialism is of diminishing significance. When you look at the opinion polling, it really is a, a shrinking rump of Canadian public opinion that, that adheres to that view. A much more widespread and, and I would say nefarious barrier that we face is this dynamic I call the new climate denialism, by which I mean political leaders and an industry that says they get and accept the science, but continues to practice a politics and a policy agenda that does not align with what that science says we have to do. That is what the federal liberal government does. That is what the BC NDP does in my province here in British Columbia, where I am. And it was true of the uh, Alberta NDP government as well. So you, you have them tabling ambitious climate plans, even while doubling down on, on new fossil fuel infrastructure in, in my province, and it's LNG and fracking, and you cannot make the math work. That is the new climate denialism. Yeah, and just to follow up on that point, in a past episode, we criticized NDP Emily Shannon Phillips, a former Alberta environment minister, for her dismissal of the idea of a Green New Deal. Uh, her perspective is that Albertans just aren't there yet when it comes to just transition. Uh, but in the same breath, she also seems to gush when talking about working with major oil sands energy companies to implement a carbon tax. Uh, and so, you know, you write about how the leaders of the Second World War didn't seek to meet the public where they were. They didn't just like mirror the public's opinion back to them, but they actually led the public. Could you talk a bit about what went on there? Well, as I say, at the outset of World War II, the Canadian public was not keen on this. Um, and for understandable reasons. And so it took a kind of consistency and coherence of message to get the public uh, on board. And that was important to the early rallying of the public opinion. But even that wasn't sufficient. And uh, this actually, I mean, you, you referenced the Green New Deal, uh, but there's an interesting precursor, I think, in the World War II story, which is that midway in the war, basically around once we get to 42, 1942, the, the, the government realized that if they were truly going to get hundreds of thousands of people to voluntarily enlist, the kind of classic propaganda of like, go get Hitler, right? Um, it wasn't enough. And that what was actually going to be needed was to engage the public in a conversation about what kind of society they would return to. And you start to see the introduction of the first major social programs in Canada. Unemployment insurance comes in in 1940. The family allowance comes in 1944. The Marsh Report, which is this historic commission that really lays the architecture for, for what would become the whole modern Canadian welfare state, is written during World War II and is offered up to the public as this promise of what they will come back to. So... I think we need that again, and that is really the appeal of the Green New Deal to to link these issues. But you know, to your your point too about you know 
I'm not talking about how great it is to partner with the industry on the carbon tax. This is the problem that we're up against. For me, the the all of the lost political capital on carbon pricing is also the new climate denialism. It's one tool. It's not. A, it's a tool I support, but it will not achieve what we need to achieve. One of the things I do at the start of the book is I look at you know the record of Canada's GHG emissions going back for 20, 20 years now. And what you see is basically a flat line. You know, we have run out the clock with these distracting debates about incremental changes, and we have failed to bend the curve when it comes to our own emissions. Uh, incidentally, that's mostly because of oil sands expansion in Alberta. Like in various jurisdictions, our emissions have in fact gone down, but it's all been undone by the expansion of the oil sands. When I when I look at that record and think, well, you know, why why has there been so little progress? It's because we have approached the climate fight through a neoliberal lens, which is to say, we try to incentivize change, we encourage change, we want to have the right price signals. Um, that's not going to work, and it wouldn't have worked in the Second World War. When you understand something to be an emergency, you don't employ voluntary measures. You mandate what has to actually happen. And that's what we have decidedly not done when it comes to climate policy. So you write about Canada's what you call prevailing culture of impossibility, which I read as a kind of continuation of this Thatcher era, there is no alternative mentality. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us what loose lips sink ships meant in the context of the Second World War and what you suggest as an equivalent attitude today when talking about climate change and the war on climate change? Well, I was having a little bit of fun with that World War II reference. And the point uh, in the war was, you know, be careful what you say, because it may, in fact, give, uh, unbeknownst to you, it may give uh, aid to the enemy. And in this, in that case, it could potentially give secrets away about the location of, of ships. But the play I was I was making in the book was, we should be careful how we talk ourselves into our own, you know, an ex a defeatism. And uh, that is, you know, with that culture of impossibility that you refer to, to me, the legacy of 40 years of neoliberalism, the most harmful element of that legacy isn't the spending cuts or the tax cuts or the deregulation or the privatization. It is the sapping of our imagination and our sense of what is possible. Again, I come back to how the point I'm making around how neoliberalism has served as this straitjacket in terms of our around our ability to do what needs to be done. Why haven't we spent and invested the way we need to to fight climate change? Why have we not uh, created new crown corporations? Why are we not using the regulatory power of the state to actually drive change? And it's because we accept a whole host of neoliberal assumptions that are wrong about what is and isn't allowed. But at a deeper level, we have lost this sense of uh, what of, of of our own ability to do great things together, and that's really what I'm trying to do in this telling of of the Second World War story in the book. It's it's an excavation 
of our memory of what we are actually capable of accomplishing together. You mentioned that public opinion in Canada wasn't particularly enthusiastic about the Second World War initially. Uh, you know, there had been a decade of the Great Depression and, you know, memories of the First World War weren't too far back. Contentious conscription debate that had gone on there. Mm-hmm. How did the government of the time end up getting the public on side? So one piece of it was that consistent message. And, you know, so there were the ubiquitous posters and, and advertising and those kinds of things. And it wasn't just how present it was. I want to emphasize the consistency. So in contrast, when I look at today, you know, when Justin Trudeau's government passes a climate emergency motion in the House of Commons one day, as they did last summer, and then the very next day reapproves the expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, that's confusing. That's an inconsistent message. Similarly, I argue in the book, why do we allow fossil fuel cars to advertise? You know, we don't allow that for tobacco products because if you're a member of the public or a young person and you're told, hey, this is serious, it's an emergency on the one hand, and yet you still see all of these things being advertised at you, that's confusing. That's an inconsistent message. So that was a piece of it. But there was a much more substantive thing going on as well. Appreciate for a moment that Mackenzie King's principal political objective during World War II was to avoid mandatory military conscription for overseas service. Now, he had been a member of Laurier's government in the First World War. He had lived through how divisive the conscription crisis had been to his own party and to the country. And so he desperately wants to avoid that. But then you're faced with a formidable challenge. How do you get what would ultimately be over a million Canadians out of a population of only 11 million at the time to voluntarily enlist. And, you know, to my previous point, you can't just have, you know, good propaganda telling people to join up. You actually have to make a different kind of promise. And in particular, you have to appreciate how inequality is toxic to the kind of social solidarity you need to mobilize at that level. And King actually understood that, partly because, again, he had lived through World War I, and he recalled how toxic the wartime profiteering had been during the First World War, and how that had eroded social solidarity and eroded recruitment efforts, right? What does it mean for some people to offer up their lives while other people are making a killing? And so right out of the gate, not only did they significantly increase taxes on the wealthy and on corporations. So the corporate tax rate in Canada in World War II went from 18 to 40%. But then they also brought in an excess profits tax. I'm going to get distracted for a minute here, guys. But think about the pandemic experience we've had in all these corporations that have profiteered in this pandemic, that have made a killing. Just last week, the CCPA, my former colleagues, published a, a paper showing that the richest 20, per, 20 Canadians combined had seen an increase in their collective wealth of $37 billion since the start of the pandemic. In the Second World War, that was illegal. They brought in an excess profits tax that was it was incredible to me when I, when I realized what they had done. They went back to the four years before the war, so still depression years, 36 to 39. For every industry, they averaged out what the profits had been. And they went to every business, large and small in the land, and said, that's your annual limit until the war is over. Like, looking back 80 years later, it's extraordinary that the business sector abided this, but they did. 
because that's what it means to be in an emergency. So these are the kinds of things that the King government is doing in World War II in order to maintain that social solidarity. Both the tax increases at the high end and these new social programs on the other side of the equation that I was telling you about before uh, and the Marsh Report. So combined, that's how they are making a commitment that we're all in this together. Seth, you commissioned a really fascinating poll in the summer of 2019 that found that much of the public is way, way ahead of the political establishment when it comes to climate action. Could you tell us about some of the more important discoveries this polling found, particularly in Alberta? Yes. So back in the summer of 2019, so a year and a bit ago, I commissioned this original poll with Abacus as part of my book research. And I did it for a few reasons. One, I I needed to know no, because so few climate communicators recommend the kind of framing that I employ in the book, a kind of emergency wartime frame. Almost all climate communicators until very recently say, don't use that language, be positive, um, that's too negative, it's too scary, don't do it. And I was curious, I wanted to know, well, what does the public actually think of that framing? I also had was feeling frustrated that so many of the solutions are individual, right? What are you individually willing to do to tackle climate change? Or will you, are you individually ready to pay a carbon tax or something like that? When in fact, tackling climate change, like the war, are an inherently collective enterprise, which I believe has to be state-led. But the other thing I wanted to get at was, you know, I interviewed many politicians and political insiders for my book. And I wasn't interested in talking to climate deniers, right? I only wanted to interview politicians who claimed to get it, but still their governments didn't act like they got it. And when you press those folks, mostly good folks, by the way, I want to emphasize this, in one way or another, they kind of fall back on some variation of the claim, oh, well, you got to meet the public where they're at and they're not there. Now, to Joel's earlier point, I am trying to say in the book well, that's not what the lead, the leaders we remember from the Second World War didn't do that. They took the public where they needed to go. But still, I wanted to test the, the, the presumption. And, you know, the overall takeaway in that poll is that uh, those politicians were wrong. They were not giving the public the credit they were due. And then, in fact, the public was ahead of our politics when it came to both understanding the climate crisis to be an emergency and to their willingness to embrace bold actions. And the support for those bold climate actions went from a high in Quebec to a low in your province, probably not surprising to you. And yet, even in your province, the support for bold action uh, was very hearteningly strong. And so, you know, part of what I'm trying to share in the book is to say to, to the rest of the country, don't let Jason Kenney define the political culture of Alberta. And don't paint them all with one broad rush because there's something more interesting going on there. Uh, so just to give you an example, um, 58% of Albertans report that they either think about climate change often or getting really anxious about it uh, or increasingly worried. 47% of Albertans believe climate change is now an, an emergency or likely will be one in the next few years. 67% of Albertans agree climate change represents a major threat to our children and grandchildren. Amazingly, 50% of Albertans said they either support or can accept phasing out the extraction and export of fossil fuels over the next 20 to 30 years. And, you know, to Shannon Phillips' point, 
When I offered in the poll a definition of the Green New Deal, 72% of Canadians thought it sounded great. And 56% of Albertans said they liked the sound of it too, and only 21% of them opposed it. So, you know, those are, those are heartening, those are pretty heartening results. Now, I, I want to acknowledge though that the public opinion picture is confusing. Part of what angers me about the messaging of Rachel Notley or Justin Trudeau is they're effectively saying to the public, you don't have to choose. You, we can take climate action and double down on the oil sands. And that's a very attractive message, not just to Albertans, uh, but to all Canadians. And so you end up with these very contradictory results where people say, yes, they want bold action, and they also like supporting the oil sands. Similarly, you find across the country, not just in Alberta, the level of basic climate literacy is very, very low. And this speaks to how poorly the government has led in terms of public education and outreach. Only half of Canadians understand that the main source of, of climate change is the combustion and burning of fossil fuels. So we got a lot of work to do in terms of some basic climate literacy. So the Second World War basically ended the Great Depression in Canada by fairly suddenly incurring full employment. What effects did full employment have domestically in Canada? Well, it transformed the balance of power <laughs> and, and the labor movement in Canada. And this is, uh, you know, this is a point, there's a part of my book that's really an appeal to, to working people in the labor movement. And basically what I'm trying to say is, yeah, there's a lot of unknowns before us. And yeah, it's a little scary. But recognize that transformations like this are transformative and often for the better. Um, so many of the early you know, some of the key early wins around union shops and certification and health and safety stuff, they all happened in the Second World War. In my province, the shipbuilders local in Vancouver went from being a very small outfit before the war to becoming the single largest union local in the country. The longshoremen in Vancouver kicked out their fake company union in the Second World War and they become the ILWU. The IWA, the, the Woodworkers Union, becomes the third largest in the country. Like all across the board, um, the labor movement is transformed by its Second World War experience. And we see real gains in the Second World War. In your book, you write that indigenous land defenders who are asserting their rights and blocking new fossil fuel development are essentially buying everyone important time by basically giving our society as a whole more time for our politics to come to grips with reality. How do you imagine the continued role of Indigenous people and First Nations in a climate mobilization? Yeah, thanks for asking. The, the chapter on Indigenous leadership in the climate mobilization is actually one of my favorites. Um, and there are these fascinating historical uh, references to uh, in terms of the indigenous role in the Second World War, you, you mentioned uh, early on about how you know it was important to the Mackenzie King government that they independently declare war, right? And so in the Second World War, they, they declared war a, a week later. Um, the Iroquois Confederacy also independently declared war during World War II on Germany uh, and the Axis powers. I guess the segue point I, I would make is this. Uh, while I was writing one day, I remember hearing a, a news report come across on the CBC about the death of Louis Levi Oaks, 
the last of the Mohawk code talkers. So the code talkers were these uh, indigenous soldiers in the Second World War who, during the war, the Allied codes kept getting broken by the Nazis and the Imperial Japanese forces. And it's at a certain point, the Americans discovered that when they had Navajo code talkers, the Axis powers couldn't uh, break the code. And they ended up recruiting indigenous uh, people from about three dozen language groups, including a number of Canadian indigenous language language speakers into the Signal Corps. And their their languages were ultimately called the Unbreakable Code. And it's just all of a sudden, you know, I heard that. I was like, I was like, oh my goodness, look at this. These languages that both Canada and the U.S. have spent generations trying to expunge from the earth, like literally beating them out of children in residential schools, end up being key to certain victories during the war, particularly in the Pacific. And then you fast forward, as you just referenced, to today, when our politics just dithers and dodges in terms of climate and having a coherent policy. And in the space of that, the assertion of indigenous rights and title over and over and over again is buying us time and stalling and blocking the expansion of fossil fuel projects until such time as our mainstream politics finally gets the emergency. Um, so that's one piece of it, and it's why defending and honoring rights and title is a key piece of the mobilization. It's why the, the kind of solidarity actions we saw on behalf of the Wet'suwet'en before the pandemic uh, are so both inspiring and important. The other piece of the equation is that a lot of the most inspiring um, renewable energy projects in Canada are happening under Indigenous leadership, um, and that needs to be supported too. The Second World War saw some truly awful domestic racism and anti-Semitism and border policing occur, and a climate mobilization modeled on the kind of war metaphor entails a certain view of the nation-state which might carry with it some potential dangers, particularly given like anti-immigration rhetoric that is circulating. How can we avoid a new border imperialism in a climate mobilization? Mm -hmm. Yeah, really important question. I mean, the short answer is we, we by, by going eyes wide open into the risks, you know, there are always risks with the kind of mobilization model that I'm proposing. And yet we have to do it because time is of the essence. The point is not to let those cautions prevent us from doing what we have to do but rather to remember them, acknowledge them, and commit not to repeat them. So this is what I try to do in the book. Most of the book, of course, is lauding this amazing story of what we did in the Second World War and the institutions we created and, and the military production we ramped up and so on. But there are a couple of chapters of the book that then highlight the cautionary tales, the, the fact that a number of those crown corporations that I that I am lauding, left a, uh, a toxic legacy on First Nations territory. And there was the incredible squashing of civil li civil liberties. There were the internments, of course, particularly of uh, both of political internments and also Japanese Canadians. And perhaps most relevant to the climate emergency was the systematic slamming of the door to refugees, particularly Jewish refugees, before, during, and after the war. And so I tell that story in the book as a way to flag, well, let's remember this, because the issue of climate migration, given the climate breakdown that's already baked in, 
is going to be one of the defining issues in the next 50 years. And we have to decide uh, how we're going to respond. I quote, when I make this point, I quote the remarkable indigenous child advocate, Cindy Blackstock. A number of years ago, I heard her speak in Vancouver, and she, she offered up a definition of reconciliation, which has always stuck with me. Very simple definition, which was that reconciliation means not having to say your sorry twice, which is to say, learn from your mistakes and make sure you don't do it again. And that, to me, is the takeaway around the question of migration and refugees. We, we got to recognize what we did, the shameful way we acted in the Second World War, and make sure that we don't have to say we're sorry again. Seth, thank you so much for joining us here on the Alberta Advantage for a discussion of your new book, A Good War. If people want to learn more about your work, buy a copy of your book, where can they go to do so or to get information? Well, first of all, to get the book, of course, you should uh, call up your local independent bookstore and order the book. You can also get it through my website. And uh, I should say, you, there's the there's the hard copy of the book. There's also ebooks, and there's actually a 19-hour audio book read by an actor uh, that you can order as well if that's uh, that's your thing. But it's all accessible through my website, which is just SethKlein.ca. Amazing! Once again, thank you so much for joining us here on the Alberta Advantage. Thank you. Makes no difference where I go, you're the best hometown I know. Hello, Calgary. Hello, Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can hear a longer version of this episode and many more on albertaadvantagepod.com. So long, Calgary. You're the best hometown I know.